He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. All right, welcome back, folks. Stay off my operating table podcast. And Bill, is this, are we starting our second century today? Um, I think we might be a few into our second okay. century, or right. maybe this is starting it, but yes. We just released episode 100 uh, last week, although I guess we probably recorded a few since then. All right. So um, it's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm Jack Heald. And we are joined today by someone who is, from everything I can tell, my people. We've got a marketer on the show. I'm not sure why, but I'm looking forward to having conversations with her. Phil? Yes, indeed, Jack. I finally, I bought you a marketer to talk with, but uh, really excited to uh, talk with Olivia Quadja today. Um, I had the fortune of meeting Olivia uh, a few months ago at a meeting. I think it was Low Carb Denver, right? Hard to yeah, yeah, it was, right? yeah. Yeah. Very good. And um, Olivia is bringing a little bit of a different perspective uh, to the metabolic health problem than than we've really talked about and working on it from a public health standpoint. And so really excited to talk to her about those efforts. Uh, But before we get to that, Olivia, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience and give a little bit of the background as to how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So yeah, I can do that. Thanks for having me on. Um, So my background is very much outside of the nutrition space. I come from a business background for well over 20 years, and I worked in pretty big companies in the UK, well-known brands. And I was very much in a kind of a strategy marketing type um, kind of areas and disciplines in in those businesses, and very much enjoyed that career. was doing very well with it but as it always happens big big companies kind of sometimes give you quite a lot of pressure and put a lot of pressure on you and I was one of those people that worked very hard as well and found myself pretty burned out um, Mm. at numerous different points in that in those two decades Um, but really kind of culminated after 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 the kind of 21st year and I felt like I needed some time to just think you know to just have, like have a have a life that wasn't to do with you know someone's corporate bottom line and and decided to take some time out and so I did that and um, one of the kind of contributing factors to that was that my parents had passed away a few years prior and I'd spent um, probably about de- another decade like looking after them and nursing them through um, metabolic illnesses. So my mum had um, Alzheimer's. So my mum had uh, type two diabetes. My dad had Alzheimer's, and 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 they just worsened and worsened over the years. And luckily, there's kind of four of us siblings, but we pretty much spent those ten years going over to their house every single night, or one of us did. Um, and so we had a rotor system, and we looked after them and and took care of them for twenty years. And I remember for ten years. And I remember my uh, dad when he was first. Um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's I remember having a very kind of very poignant conversation with him when he knew that he was 
going in the direction of losing his mind. And he'd been a very capable person. He was a, a pilot his whole life. Um, and he said to me, is there going to be a cure for this? Is there going to be a cure in time for me? And I remember trying to do some research, but just not finding anything at the time. It was quite a while ago. And, you know, I had to say it was very sad. I had to say to him, I, I don't think so. I do, well, unless we can hope or we can pray, but I don't think that's going to happen. And so and then he, you know, pretty soon after that got past the point of knowing that 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 who he used to be. And it was very harrowing to watch your parents, you know, degenerate like that and see these very capable people become shells of themselves. And and so a few years forward after that, I just thought, well, I, you know, if I'm going to have some time out, I need to figure out if I there's any way I can de-risk myself getting those horrible, horrible illnesses and ways to live. And um you know, because I assumed they were hereditary and I was going to get them and I had, I was done for. I didn't probably even have much of a any control over it. But I thought I'll just see if there's anything I can do from a nutritional standpoint and um, and started digging and started looking into how to prevent Alzheimer's, how to prevent type 2 diabetes. And lo and behold, there not only is a way to de-risk it, there's a way to pretty much you know, avert it altogether. And that really blew my mind because, you know, it wasn't like I was someone who didn't pay attention to these things. And I considered myself fairly well educated and I knew, you know, generally what was going on in the world, but it felt like there was something very wrong that nobody knew that there are ways to prevent these chronic illnesses that everyone is getting and that everyone is seeing someone who they care about get and watching them suffer. So I just thought, well, am I going to go back to a corporate job or am I going to, can I use some of my skills and my background in this space where, you know, my, my background is about public education and about marketing and, and awareness campaigns. So maybe I can, I can deploy them somewhere where it's desperately needed in my opinion. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what got me into that, into that kind of realm. And then the public health collaboration, who's a, uh, a charity in the UK that is trying to do that very thing, which is educate the public about the right way to eat. Um, they were actually uh, looking for board trustees to join their organisation around the same time, and so it was almost like a you know very serendipitous coincidence that 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 was what they were looking for. That's what I was looking for, and so um, I was really pleased to to join their board and to try and help them um, progress this narrative, progress how we grow this this movement and this um this kind of information for people that is so lacking and this there's so many misunderstandings around it so many myths so many um you know so much confusion so many conflicting sets of advice that you know it's no wonder people don't really know where to turn so hopefully you know i can i can be of some use in this space so that's my that's my hope anyway and i think it would be it would be great to start turning turning the you know shifting the needle a bit on this and getting people to really pay attention. And I definitely see that that's starting to happen. So that's that's good. Well, don't leave us there. You definitely <laughs> see that it's starting to happen. What are you seeing? Um, well, I mean, I definitely, personally, I've, I've progressed my own journey at the same time. I've gone through a phase of being keto, low-carb keto, and now I'm, I've been carnival for the last 14 months. and. Um, and in the carnival movement, I really see an increase in the number of people that are doing it and that are talking about it. So that community is definitely growing and I'm quite involved in the community as well. So I definitely see on a daily basis, people are fixing their health and really 
incredible stories of, of what they're fixing. You know, everything from autoimmune to mental health, um, gut issues, everything is getting solved by, by that diet. Um, and, and keto has been big for a long time. I was doing some research the other day on, on, you know, which diet is Google the most and keto has led the way for a long time. So, um, I think that's, you know, that's, that's positive, even though it's at the moment people doing it mainly for weight loss and not knowing that it is actually, you know, there isn't any, there are many, many more benefits than, than weight loss. And there isn't a cost that they may have thought of, or they may have heard about, which they think is like a fad diet aspect to it. Um, they're still coming to it anyway for the weight loss. So that's, that's a good positive start. Um, so I'm definitely seeing that. I mean, even our, our, you know, our public health collaboration, our numbers are growing, people following us, people wanting to, you know, reaching out, wanting to know more, um, wanting to be referred to low carb doctors. Where's my nearest low carb doctor? You know, all of those questions coming through in a lot more volume, I'd say just in the last, you know, six months compared to before that. So I see there's kind of like green shoots of, of the, of it growing, but there's a still a long, long, long way to go. So um, what what are some of the things that uh, the public health collaboration over in the UK is doing to, uh, you know, get us uh, further down that pathway, like you said? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're doing we're doing a lot. So we have um, overall what we're about is helping to educate the public about metabolic health. And that's that's what our mission and, and goal is. And um and the way that we do that is you know we have, we have various different ways um we have a, a big conference that happens every year um which just went uh which went ahead in in may and we had lots of uh great guests coming along um who came along sean baker and um, ben bigman were there and a few others uh georgia Ede. and so that that is creating a little bit of momentum so that got kind of national coverage in newspapers and so people were talking about it and it got some some of our messages out we got a lot of local coverage where we had where we had the conference in the UK and in local newspapers local radio and again doctors going and supporting that message talking on the radio about low carb so that's that's one aspect which is the conference um, which is a bit of a kind of attention grabbing moment in the year and then we have ongoing projects Um, one of them we have an NHS in the UK which is a, a publicly funded health system and um and at the moment if you have type 2 diabetes or if you're pre-diabetic you are generally given the kind of the standard uh, a food uh, pyramid as your guidelines for what to eat which is not a good thing um and there are a few programs that do help you that they refer patients to um, from the nhs which are generally a low calorie approach to how to eat to improve your type 2 diabetes and what we are offering which is quite unique in this in this space is a um a coaching online coaching program over a, a, a period of weeks and it is very much in the low carb um uh, approach that we take it's pretty much a representation of Dr Unwin and what he uh, what he does when he has reversed about 130 of his own patients type 2 diabetes in the north of England he's a, a known doctor here for doing that and it's it's using that and rolling that out, and um, that's called the the Lifestyle Club, which is a, a program we are very much now trying to push ahead with in in the NHS, and we're trying to research with the University of Surrey here to validate the results that we're getting, which is far superior, um, and we believe will be far superior to any of the other programs that the NHS is referring into. 
And if we are able to prove that, then that will become one of the main programs that people in the UK will get referred to. So that's a, a, a key initiative of ours at the moment. And we're crowdfunding for it. So if anybody would like to, to help with that, um, please look at the GoFundMe TLC um, a website for that. And um, hopefully we can get that, that can be rolled out for to be available to everyone. Um, and it, we, we know it is going to have far superior results in reversing type 2 diabetes because it's happening all the time. So we just need to prove that um, and get it more widely available. Um, and then we have uh, other projects as well. So we're very involved in food addiction. Um, I don't know how uh, much you guys or if you know uh, Dr. Jen Unwin, who's Dr. David Unwin's wife, but she's really um leading the way leading the charge on food addiction as a, an addiction being recognized by um um by authorities by addiction experts and um and by different um, organizations that deal with um with diet nutrition and um they are taking they have been taking um a case to the who to get it uh, officially recognized and put on the dsm as an addiction and um and we're hoping that in doing that, what we will then have is a very different approach to how food addiction is dealt with in, you know, all over, all over um, and, and and allow people to really recognize it as an addiction. They're coming up with some great tools, um, which is like a kind of a diagnostic tool where you can you can go through a number of questions and you get to figure out whether or not you know the kind of the habits and the behaviors that you know about yourself and food and one of the reasons people often struggle with low carb is because they they it's hard to get off some of those processed foods that are designed to be addictive so no wonder and um and what this tool allows them to do is to recognize that as something which almost isn't their fault you know and it's not something they should be blaming themselves for because these are foods that as i said are designed to be addictive and so um, if they're finding that they're really struggling to get rid of those processed foods, get rid of sugar um, and processed carbs, then there's a whole tool of um, a whole suite of tools that they can get help with to, to do that through the food addiction uh, platform that we have. Um, so that's also on our on our public health collaboration website, the food addiction resources section. Um, and yeah, those are our two main projects at the moment. We also have a project which is focused on helping to educate children away from processed food. And that's um, that's kind of in the earlier stages, but it's something we're very passionate about as well. I'm very passionate about changing the way, the way kids eat. Um, I have two kids myself and we've been through a bit of a, well, a fantastic journey actually, because they've, they've both pretty much moved away from sugar and processed food and they're both reaping the benefits of it. So um, now that we've kind of had that lived experience, it's quite useful for, for thinking about how we help other kids and how we message it because they have, you know, very different um, motivations as kids as to what was is going to get them to to do something. As every parent will know, I'm trying to find okay. out is like. Well, I have to follow up on that. <laughs> um, I, I have a a. How old is Eli? Thirteen. Uh, Thirteen. I can't be right. Eli, 13. I have a 13-year-old grandson um, who is a, a sugar fiend. And uh, the other boys, not so much, but Eli struggles. And I'd love to hear 
as would his parents, what strategies, what techniques are working with kids uh, break those addictions? Yeah. So I, my very strong view on this is that if I w- if you were to say to a child, if I say to my kids, you are not allowed to have any sugar and you are not allowed to have any carbs, I would get nowhere. <laughs> so for me, it's a it's a kind of a little bit like all parenting, a bit of reverse psychology that needs to go on, a little bit of hinting, planting of seeds, and education in the most you know the least um, the least uh, formal way. Uh, and you know they're very close to what I do. So we, you know when we have dinner, we t- I talk about what I've learned that day, and you know maybe some nuggets of you know, I didn't know that this is how insulin worked or something like that. So we, we, we bring that into the conversation a lot. So they understand how the body works. And I think that's a good foundation for them to start to think about the fact that their own body works a certain way. Um, but then they're still kids, right? So they, just because you say to them, you know, this is, this could cause you to get to get type two diabetes in the future. Doesn't mean they think that that's going to happen to them because they're kids and they think they're going to live forever and they can do what they like. Um, but so that's where I think other motivations come into place. So I think the first step is don't preach it, don't force it, just make it known that how things work. And what I found then the second step is maybe planting a seed as to what the benefits could be, which is in tune with their motivations. So my daughter, for example, who is 14 years old, is very conscious about her, you know, her weight, her her, her appearance. Um, you know, she's very sporty. She wants to be able to perform well. So in t- getting in tune with those motivations, I think makes a much bigger difference. So she noticed that her skin cleared up as soon as she started reducing her sugar. And then she was like, oh, look, I haven't got any spots anymore. Um, and then that kind of got her more into it. And then she noticed that she's getting comments at school from her teachers saying, oh, you're really performing. Your, your netball is fantastic. And she plays that as a sport. Um, a British sport that we have like basketball and and they've been they've been you know really uh kind of complimenting her her skills and how they've been improving so she's been getting that positive feedback um you know she's dropped quite a lot of weight and um her hair is a lot shinier so all of these things which are much more what they <laughs> would care about than than thinking about long-term health are what I think will help kids because they have to do it for their own self-interest they're never going to do it for anyone else so I think those are those are fairly important. Um, but it's hard because if you look at, you know, look at their sources of information and you look at, you know, they they spend most time on things on areas like uh, TikTok and apps like that. And I mean, the kind of information you see on there is just despicable <laughs> as far as I'm concerned when it comes to food, because you see all these people having eating challenges and, you know, trying to eat 30,000 calories in a day and eating green and pink food only for a day and all these kind of stupid messages about food and how it's okay to abuse your body by doing these challenges just for fun I just think it's this it's really it's really bad you know it just sends the wrong message so there's a lot to there's a lot to I guess um, balance off when you've got all of that in there every day um, kind of uh, every day browsing So, you know, looking at it sort of with your business and marketing background and that perspective and, and, you know, certainly a challenge, um, you know, 
and here in the US is is probably even worse uh, than the UK, but you have that constant bombardment of the food advertisements and the messaging around that. Uh, and now you add in, you know, you bring up a very good point that, um, you know, on the internet and on all these different uh, platforms, you know, the, the same, uh, uh, you, you at least have the subtle, if not the, you know, overt uh, advertisement of all these things uh, to children and and to adults, frankly, as well. Uh, so how do we start to counteract that? You know, what are the um, strategies that we should be using uh, to counteract this, you know, overwhelming amount of messaging uh, that is not supportive of people's health? Yeah. Do you mean for kids or generally? Well, yeah, both, I would say. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it it's it's pretty much the same thing, I think, anyway, which is, you know, the reason those things grab attention is because someone's put the thought into how to make them appeal to their audience. You know, so, for example, um, there was a challenge that Sprite did recently, and the challenge was you had to drink a whole can of Sprite in one go and not stop, not hiccup not throw up any of that kind of stuff and so all these celebrities were drinking cans of sprite one go i mean it's a perfect marketing campaign for sprite because your product's everywhere you're getting people to guzzle your product down and everyone thinks it's it's cool um you know it's perfect product placement and i think we need to think about how we we play that game back because the shock effect and the the interest level comes when you do something that goes viral like that. And I think if you were to just go out there with a, I don't know, a nice infographic saying, you know, guess what? If you eat this stuff, you won't get these diseases. You won't get any traction with it. So how do you make it really cool, really interesting, really fun for people? And I think what is in our favor is that a lot of what we want to say is diametrically opposite to what people think. And that is a benefit in terms of getting a message out because you can start to do stuff which has that shock value. Um, you know, fat doesn't make you fat is like, what? well, it does, doesn't it? So so it, it calls your your assumptions into question, the kind of pre, uh, preconceived wisdom is, is challenged. You know, stuff like that, I think, is where, where we have to go with it. Um, similarly, on the environment and the eating... Um, eating beef and the effect that that has on kind of emissions, we have a diametrically opposite message, which we can use to, to create some kind of shock values. That's where I think we need to, we need to go and play the same, you know, beat them at that game. And that's, that's probably a bit more in the kind of TikTok space, but I think it's to a certain degree still applies wherever it is, because you want your message to be, to be seen and heard and you want people to pay attention to it. So it has to have some element of, of interest and surprise and maybe something which just makes it you know likely to go viral um that's what you know very much from my kind of consumer marketing background i'm thinking we have to we we can't just send out this is a, a big change this is a big message that we're trying to say and we shouldn't um downplay that in any way or just think that it's it's the same as you know the same category is something else that might be communicated in a more standard way. It's something that we, we we probably should just really think about how we make it cut through very strongly. I think uh, I think I need to get uh, Sean and Anthony together and we need to uh, get the uh, ribeye challenge going. Yeah, <laughs> I know. In fact, someone suggests that um, 
that we do something like you know how quickly can you eat a a steak or something you know something like that which um which you know brings all the messaging together i think would be great i don't know how well you'll do against those two though oh i have no <laughs> chance against those two but it will still be entertaining they're pretty good at eating a lot of steak <laughs> well i want to i want to follow up on something you said about uh appealing to our children you said appeal to their self-interest and one of the things that <clears throat> that we're fighting against in the United States, I would assume you face in the UK as well. And that is the self-interest of the uh, the large institutions. Um, had a number of physicians on the show who were shocked to find out that their institutions were not supportive of their efforts to help patients. Um, and I don't think I need to unpack that very much, but I'm interested, what are you dealing with in the UK since, since, uh, the NHS is essentially what healthcare is in the UK. It's a different issue, different type of, of public healthcare situation than we have in the United States. What about the, the self-interest of the NHS? What about the self-interest of the medical institutions? What about the self-interest of the pharmaceutical institutions? What about the self-interest of the, uh, everybody who makes money off disease? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do have a very different setup here um, because you would think at face value, the NHS would be interested in saving money because they are publicly funded and they take a lot of the public budget up. Um, it's, You'd a think. Huge, it's a huge cost to the taxpayer. And, and so, you know, the government always needs to have funds that it doesn't have. It's, you know, hopefully it would be in its interest to try and save money in the NHS. And not to mention the fact that we have the NHS is very much under strain. It's a very current public conversation that we have all the time about who's going to be who's going to be able to fix the NHS which political party is going to be able to do that we have nurses uh, that are not paid well enough we have doctors that are striking so it's already in a very strange situation so um the public funding should if if no, no other time um than now should be something of high interest and um we have already shown very strong evidence for how we can take that cost out. Uh, so David Unwin uh, in the north of England that I mentioned, our NHS doctor that is part of the PHC, Public Health Collaboration, has shown that if every GP practice in the UK was to prescribe as he does, which is to basically de-prescribe people off, uh, off uh, diabetes medication, We'd save 270 million just from just from shifting to how he prescribes, and that's not even the rest of the cost of type two diabetes. We spend 10 billion pounds a year on type two diabetes, and eight billion of that is on on procedures and surgeries. <laughs> I thought it was going to be drugs money, but it's actually not. So you've got the drug money in there, but you've also got the fact that people need to have, unfortunately, amputations, cataract removals and uh, cataract uh, clearing and 
other issues that need resolving through surgical procedures. So that is a huge cost burden that is totally unnecessary. And just on the drugs aspect, we have shown that that you can extrapolate out what has happened with, with David Unwin's small little GP practice where he's brought his cost down so significantly by not using as many drugs for type 2 diabetes. We have taken that to the health secretary of the UK and said, look what can happen if we were to look at this approach. And nothing has come of that. And that was a few years ago. So we have, we have made this information known to the right people. We couldn't go any higher than where we went. And the response was pretty much along the lines of, yeah, but that would cause there to be unemployment in certain industries. And those were the kind of responses that we got. So it's a very difficult um it's a very difficult suggestion or it's a very difficult change that I think people are not ready for at this stage and I think we have to chip away at it at the top as we have been doing but I think the way to the only way to really make change is to go grassroots up so that's kind of where we're getting to now like there's not enough pressure at the top for people to think oh I'll just do this because it seems like the right thing to do and it will save money and it will be people's help that's even those things are not enough. You know, there's just too much embedded, uh, you know, uh, too much embedded kind of um, system in the system that is not um, ready. People are not ready to see change in. So, I think unless people actually see the benefit themselves, they change their behaviour, they benefit, and then they tell more people that's when you'll start to see a shift at the top because then people will start to question it. The public will start to question what on earth is going on. And I don't think we're far enough up that adoption curve yet. So, you know, any change has got a, an adoption curve where you've got your early uh, innovators, your early adopters, yeah. your early majority. I think we're kind of still in that innovators stage where you've got, you know, the people who have the most desperate have moved on to a better, this better way of eating and they've seen that benefit. And they're, they're probably those that have like those autoimmune issues or really bad kind of like disease um, levels that they've managed to sort out. But they're, they're at that desperation door before they actually get to the point of benefiting. And and now hopefully in the next segment of, along that curve, you'll have people who actually think, well, this has helped my health. You know, maybe people who are more in the fitness space, for example, who want to optimize and are hearing that this is the right the right way to do it and they're not so desperate but they do it for a different motivation and then they'll join the crowd and i can see a lot of these people now already starting to to be part of um the low carb movement but you need a good number of all of those people before i think enough will say i've seen that person change their life and i'm going to try it as well and so i you know for me it's just about let's just grow quickly because the quicker we grow it from the grassroots up the quicker we'll get to that tipping point wherever it is where enough people will be questioning the authorities enough people will be questioning their doctors um and or ignoring them all and just making the change themselves and right. and moving it forward that way and you know dr unwin who's very well known in the uk maybe to you guys as well but the way that he changed his approach was from a, a patient coming and sitting down in front of him and saying, I'm very unhappy with what you advise me and I'm going to complain about it. And that's when he sat up and said, well, you know, how did you reverse your type two diabetes? And she told him that she'd been online and 
figured out how to go low carb and reversed it herself. And he never knew that was possible. So the, it has to go that way around, I think, um, for a lot of doctors. I don't think they're going to they're gonna do it any other way until they see it happening and start questioning what on earth is going on. So, yeah, that's yeah. my view on it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's been almost universal, you know, uh, certainly all the physicians we've had on this show now and and the many more that I've spoken to, you know, at conferences and such. Um, it, it's exactly that, you know, either it's their own health challenge that brought them to this, or it was a patient, you know, that had, uh, you know, such great results that brought them to this. And um, I think only now are we starting to see uh, you know, some younger physicians who are, you know, kind of waking up to this without having to, you know, go through that. Uh, but uh, it, it's a huge challenge. What What is the PHC doing along the lines of trying to influence practitioners? Uh, you know, uh, you've already talked about how we're getting information to the patients, to the people. Uh, what's the PHC doing to kind of influence and support the practitioners to make these changes? Yeah, we um, we actually have a lot more support from the medical community at this point, the healthcare uh, practitioners community, because everyone in the PHC before I joined has been has come from the NHS. You know, these are doctors and scientists that have figured this stuff out and and want to make the change. So uh, there is a lot of, uh, in the PHC following, a lot of people from that, that kind of background who've come to it because they know any of some of those doctors and it's just kind of grown from there. So a lot of people just know us because they, they're, in the, they're in the field and, and we're known in the field. Um, but what we also have is a network of over 200 ambassadors. Uh, so these are people who are ge generally the general public or could be kind of someone in the health space, like a nutritionist type person. They are signed up as ambassadors for the public health collaboration. And so what they do on our behalf is they go and engage with their local GP practice. And they say, look, we are able to run courses. We're able to advise your patients on, on how to eat. And, and we're kind of, we're infiltrating that way into the medical system so that so that doctors start to start to hear about this differently and start to appreciate and see that their patients can can actually get some help with improving their their lifestyle um so yeah so there's lots of there's lots of connections that we have to to get gps along and as, as well as that the is the the lifestyle club that i mentioned earlier which is an actual referral service for the nhs and gps to to help um to help people with type two diabetes. So, so it's growing, it's growing. I mean, there was definitely resistance as well. Um, but I did speak to a doctor just recently, who's one of those that really believes in it and has themselves questioned, you know, the guidelines that are given to them and have gone to the, the top and have said, you know, we don't understand why we're being told that, you know, it's only recently that we've even allowed for low carb to be one of the options in the type 2 diabetes nice guidelines that we have um but it's certainly not the preferred option it's just one of the options in there it's not not pushed very heavily and and these doctors want to see that change coming so they're questioning their own their own authorities on it and not seeing any change so they're just doing it anyway you know and there's a good well over 100 doctors in the UK that are on a network together that are all having these conversations every day and talking about their results 
So it's it's growing, you know, I'd say in a similar way to what I said about the public having a grassroots, you know, up movement. I think the medical community is starting to do that too, um, in that kind of way. Um, but yeah, just needs to go quicker. <laughs> I always want it to be faster and and quicker. And you know, and I guess I'm I I I take a step back and look at it from as a public education um challenge, which you know, my previous role before I was anywhere in the nutrition space was in the energy business and my specific role was to pretty much let everyone in the UK know about a particular product that they had to then you know understand what the benefits were they had to change their behavior they had to accept an installation of this product and then they had to um, save energy off the back of it and that was a government mandate that we had to communicate and that and this is the role of um, smart meters and that challenge took us and um probably about 15 years and we we're certainly not there yet but it's 15 years in and the idea was to get to 100% within 10 years and we spent well over 100 million pounds a year on marketing and advertising across the industry to try and get that 50% level of penetration over 15 years and that yeah, and was this was mandated and this is man well it was mandated that's that we had to give the product out but it was an opt-in from a consumer point of view so we had wow. to convince them to do that to take those to make all those changes and that that size of that challenge is maybe is certainly as big as the challenge that we're talking about if not um a bit smaller but it it's it was it was hard enough addressing something that big and we had the funding to do it. Like we were willing to throw whatever we had to throw at it because we wanted to meet our targets. And we have no funding when you compare it to to that. You know, we don't have the opportunity to spend a hundred million pounds or however many millions of dollars have been spent on the same thing in the US. We don't have that option because there's no profit to be made in doing this. So it's it's already we're already on a slightly an uphill struggle from that point of view. But the challenge, as I said, is no is no smaller. It's certainly bigger, if anything, because we want to talk to children as well, and we want to change that for as many people as possible. So, um, so I look at it in that perspective and very much with that lens, and think, oh my god, this is a huge task because it's going to take generations. Like as much as we want to speed it up, it's just not going to happen until until the grassroots movements gets going, because um, we can't advertise, we can't push it on people. Um, and it's just going to, but, you know, I think there's also opportunities in there because when you hear advertising, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of skepticism in the consumer's mind when they see something that's clearly an advert and they yep. think, well, who's is that in? And that's probably for you to make profit or because you are told that you have to do it or whatever the, the, the kind of perception is. Um, whereas this isn't the same in that way. This is something which is being, being adopted by people who believe in it. And who are hearing people that they trust and that they see as, you know, the authority and the expert. Um, and I think that that makes for a much more um, authentic connection and people will change their behavior as a result once they get to that point. So so there's, you know, there's kind of pros and cons in a way, but I still whichever way you want to slice and dice it, it's a, it's a huge challenge from, from that point of view. I want to 
I want to pursue um, a, a line of ideas back to your work with British Airways. Uh, I, I stalked you a little bit to find out who I was talking to today. <laughs> and uh, you were involved in their customer loyalty program. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I spent, I basically spent 30 years studying this particular uh, psychological phenomena of loyalty. Um, and my question for you is, is there a way to leverage what you learned in terms of customer loyalty, how to provoke it, how to maintain it, that might be applicable here? And, and part of what's driving this is a comment you made about your $100 million a year marketing budget. Um, as as somebody who lives in that world, the idea of having a hundred million dollars to spend on marketing, um, you know, <clears throat> well, we all know we know we all know how wonderful that would feel. But on the other hand, got that kind of budget, it tends to uh, uh, do things to your thinking. Whereas when you are operating extremely constrained budget, it tends to drive creative thinking. And I'm wondering. You know, my research into into loyalty has taught me that that loyalty is primarily a psychological reflex. Um, is there a way to leverage that to bring about this particular kind of uh, ultimately behavior change is the result of a change in thinking? So we got to change the thinking before we're going to change the behavior. I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, loyalty is, is an interesting aspect of marketing because what you're trying to do there, ideally, is to create an emotional connection with someone. You want loyalty to be based on what somebody wants and feels rather than what they have to do. So whilst there is an aspect of like an airline loyalty, for example, there is the frequent flyer points and there is the, the kind of the monetary aspect of, of loyalty. That was only ever a hygiene factor because everyone is kind of, in the same ballpark in terms of what they provide so the way that you differentiate what you want to offer and to drive real loyalty and create that emotional connection is something which is less tangible something which is um uh which is appeals to their values appeals to their wants and needs in life and gives them a connection with you a relevance that others don't have um so so like in the in case of of British Airways which is a very very known brand in the UK people do have an affinity to it if they're british because it's our national carrier and everyone's got some connection to it from their family whatever it might be there's a natural affinity to it it's much harder when it's when it's when we're trying to have that connection with someone who's based outside of the UK because then it's just any other airline um so and the way that we build that is to is to think about experiences that we can give them, think about opportunities that, you know, certainly for like the most loyal customers will do something fantastic for them that really makes them feel like, gosh, I'm valued and they really care about me. Or we will do something which, as I said, appeals to their, their values. So try and bring it together, try and bring an experience together with something that they find meaningful, like something to do with um, helping certain communities or helping on the environment so we think about more creatively about how you how you give them something which they will always have in their 
what you want them to have it is in their emotions and in their heart that they link to you. Um, and I actually think that what we're talking about here, the way this movement is going, is people are is people are connecting with influencers to get to to get to the point of changing their way of eating. Um, I haven't seen many that have done it from just following someone like an authority figure or a doctor's advice. It's come mainly from doing their own research and finding people that they trust and that they feel that connection with and then adopting their advice. So I think we're already doing that. And I think that's the reason it's working is because people are connected to their favorite influencer, whoever it might be, or, you know, kind of a few of them probably. And, and that's where that's, that's the hardest bit that you as a company that you're trying to capture in a bottle. But I think we have it in abundance when it comes to, when it comes to the the route that I see people going through to change their diet at the moment, what we were missing is the stuff, which is, you know, plastering the message so that they ha- they will end up hearing about it. We're missing the thrust of advertising and marketing, but we, but we do have the emotional side, I think, kicking in. And especially when people are seeing the results and they're seeing people reverse all kinds of autoimmune condition, whatever it might be. And and it's it's astounding. You as soon as that happens in your life or in someone else's life that you care about, you will have an automatic connection to that way of eating, and it will pull you in. And you've got that. You've got that person. Um, you've got that person kind of bought in already. So I think it's very. I think the emotional side is is. I think we're doing it already. The loyalty side is happening because people then are connected to to that way of eating or to an influencer. Does that make sense? Yep. It yeah. does. You know, it's so interesting because, um, and I'm not sure that there's a parallel to anything that I can think of offhand, but, you know, you go back a hundred years and people didn't need to be told what to eat. You know, they just were able to basically eat what's around them. And then, uh, you know, we got into this situation where uh, we started telling people what to eat. Uh, but you know, essentially, they were given advice that has only made things worse. Uh, And so now you have this, you know, I find that there are a couple of kind of groups of people out there, there are some that, you know, just don't believe that what they eat has anything to do with their health. And then there are others that are saying, well, you know, I, I've been trying to eat healthy and it's not working, you know, following the kind of mainstream advice. So why should I believe, you know, you now when you come and say, well, this is how you should eat for your health. And, you know, being able to overcome both of those uh, challenges is uh, is so problematic because, you know, the, the, the loyalty part of it, we sort of have, you know, I, I know very few people who come to this way of eating and don't get passionate about it and don't stick with it uh, because, you know, they see the results and and they feel great and they want to tell everyone around them, you know, about it. Uh, But we have these barriers of, you know, kind of those other two camps um, that uh, that kind of stand in the way of more people uh, kind of coming to this. And I'm, and I'm not sure, how we, you know, overcome that, except, 
like you said, keep doing what we're doing and getting more and more people who are going to, you know, influence the circles around them. I think so. I think, and, and playing that opposite game, you know, of really putting messages out there that 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 cause you to question what you think you know. Um, I think that's that's really important. And there is so much confusion out there, you know. So people, you know, there's the low calorie camp, there's the plant based camp. Um, and you know, one of the things that we did at our conference this year was to say, look, the the main if the main stance that we have as public health collaboration is we want people to eat real food. That's that's the main step. We have to get processed food out of out of our lives and the levels that it's at. And so anyone who's eating real food, whether that's plant-based um, or more meat-based, that's still better than where we are right now. Um, for the if, if everyone just moved away from processed food, we'd be in a lot better situation. Um, but we also did think it would be worth people hearing both of those real food types of diet being discussed together. So we had a, a conversation between some plant-based doctors and some meat-based doctors and, and, and just, and just had it kind of head on. And we, we specifically covered certain topics. So we covered saturated fat, fiber, and um, evolution. And we said on all those three topics, let's discuss why it would be that one diet might fare better than the other. Um, and those are the the main ones which which pretty much determine which way you go in on your diet. Uh, saturated fi- saturated fat, fiber, mm-hmm. and, and evolution. Yes. So, what role would evolution play? Um, what does evolution tell us about oh, the way okay. that we should be? Eating? What does evolution? What can we learn from from yeah. an evolutionary standpoint about? Okay, make I, that makes yeah. sense. Um. And so I think it's good to have those discussions because I think as a as a you know a, an innocent person in the in the public that's trying to figure out which way to eat, they're going to hear you know a lot of people say that plant based and not having meat is better for them. Um, and there's a lot of research to in theory looks like supports it. And um, and then you hear people now talking much more about meat-based. So how do you know which way to go? How do earth can you decipher? If doctors can't decide between them which is best, then how do how is a general layman supposed to do that? So that's why we wanted to bring those conversations together because there's very few um there's very few pieces of content out there on the internet where people discuss these things directly with each other and and challenge each other. So you hear the back and forth. You don't just hear a pitch and a pitch and then you have yeah. to figure out which one's right you hear the actual challenges going from one side to the other and so i think that's a huge missing part of of the puzzle for people um and so we did have that at our conference we had two meat-based doctors uh discussing those topics with two plant-based um doctors and it was everyone's opinion that that was the highlight of of the conference and people were looking forward to it people were you know, people naturally have a, a kind of a preference for one of those two. And so they, you know, they're, they're more engaged. You know, this is a kind of going back to the loyalty thing. It pulls people in when they think, oh, you know, I'm linked to that and I want to hear how well we do and I want to support my side. And and that's not necessarily, we're not trying to create any, um, any animosity at all, but people naturally have that. Um, what we want to do is to lay out the facts so you can hear it contrasted and challenged 
um, side by side. And and then you can make your own mind up as to which one you think made more sense to you because you just are in a much more informed position. And, and I think that's an important part for to help people along along the road. Um, so we hopefully will do more of that as the public health collaboration. And hopefully others will too. I think there's some podcasts that are hopefully going to bring together very contrasting views and and just see how people how people, how people do and maybe some of the people that we expect to do well will be challenged in a way that they weren't expecting and I think that's that's healthy what um you you came out this like you said without really a background in nutrition or any really expectations you were just kind of looking for answers looking for a, a possible solution for you know your family's issues and your issues um what what has surprised you most uh, as you've you know gotten into this now? Uh, I think you're a few years deep. Uh, what's been most surprising about this whole uh, ecosystem, we'll call it? Oh, what is most surprising? So many things. Um, I guess, I mean, on the diet side itself, I it's it's quite it's quite strange that the you know it's it's quite a strong message which um i think is surprising in a way that we spend our whole lives worrying about getting all these damn diseases that everyone's getting you know we think i don't want to have cancer that looks awful i don't want to have alzheimer's and they all seem like a they're hereditary and b that they have nothing to do with each other and to turn all of that on its head and to be able to appreciate and then share that they are not hereditary by a long way. There may be some factor in there, but it's it's nothing that can't be overcome with diet. And they're all coming from the same thing. They're all stemming from the same underlying metabolic issue. That's a that's such a contrast to what people think just about the world and health and and but such a good message as well like it basically means all you've got to do it may not be easy to do it but all you've got to do is change your diet to this way of eating and you're preventing yourself from getting all all of those diseases lists and lists of them not even the the obvious ones there's so many that's it that's just such a about turn to everything people generally understand um and yeah, that's probably what hit me the most. That's why it just feels like everything is just so wrong and so so up for questioning. And it causes you to question so many other aspects of your life as well. Because then once you've started to realize that your diet is wrong, then you think, oh, what about my, I don't know, my beauty products? And what about my, you know, how I'm, how, what creams I'm using, all that kind of stuff. So everything, what about my toothpaste? And what about, you know, everything starts to then become, oh, I thought it was better to have fluoride. No, it's not. Like, it's just like an opposite game that we're playing. And it's just, it blows my mind every day. And I think one day we're going to look back at it and go, what was that crazy period? We were all doing the wrong thing. And then we had to just start doing the opposite. Like, I just feel like we need some perspective (laughs) on this. It's just crazy. It's a crazy situation. There's a lot of us who have that thought. (laughs) so other than other than a lack of funding what's the what's the primary challenge that the public health collaboration faces right now in in fulfilling its mission 
what is the challenge? Um, other than funding, funding is definitely a big one. Um, but I think I think it's going to be it's going to be just pushing back against all of this these myths that are out there. Um, everything we've been talking about, really, the kind of the confusion on diet, um, the the fact that people are so skeptical about what they hear, they've almost got information overload. Um, it's really hard to 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 suggest that that you know it almost feels like we're we're trying to sell snake oil by saying it's really simple you just got to do this one thing and then everything just you know all problems just disappear in a puff of smoke <laughs> you know it's almost too good to be true i think that's actually a bit of a challenge because everyone's heard it already well i heard weight watchers are going to do the same thing i heard that you know this other diet does it and i heard that you know low calorie is the best way to go and you know i have a friend who's in who's been in slimming world for i don't know how many years and she is bigger than she was when she started, unfortunately. And I have reached out to her and said, you know, it really, Slimming World is not, if you have to pay someone to tell you how to eat, that's already a sign that something's probably not right. Um, but she posts pictures of her food every day and it's just the most, you know, I'm sure it fits within her calories or whatever it is, how they target themselves, but it's the worst food that she's eating. And I can just see it continuing like that. So it's, you know, I think the reason she wouldn't, even though I know her and she's seen that I've had a health journey and a change, that's not enough evidence for her. And I think people are just weary of all the information out there. Like they just, unfortunately, are not really willing, not ready psychologically and emotionally to take on another new, oh, this is the, this is the way to do it. You know, I think it's just people's, people's apprehension to new information, probably. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, they've sort of lost hope. And, uh, you know, what so many of us are trying to do is give people back hope and, uh, you know, and to let them know that there are answers and these, you know, what they've been told that, you know, essentially they there's no other option but to be sick and you just try and manage it as best you can. Uh, versus the message that we're spreading that you can take mm. back your health, you know, control of your health, and you can be healthy and vibrant uh, by, you know, by adopting these changes in your life. Yeah. And people are so desperate now that, you know, that there's so much conversation and about these um, GLP agonists becoming acceptable as a route out of all of this. And it just, um just shows how much we've lost our way that we don't know how to get out that we have to resort to things like that but um you know it's I've seen so many nutritionists supporting these weight loss drugs as well and talking about how it's a very important option to have for people who are in that um that state of obesity to be able to get themselves out of it but we just know that it's going to cause more issues down the line but the way them they're messaging it and these are not even Big Pharma. These are nutritionists that have been very much supported by Big Pharma in, in an indirect way, probably. Um, so they think they're thinking for themselves, but actually, um, you know, what they're what they're saying is that, well, you know, nature wants us to be fat. And so uh there's it's not your fault you're fat. It's it's the fact that the human body is doing that to you. And 
Um, and many people can't lose weight through dieting. And if you find that you struggle, then you're one of those people that's that's a candidate for these drugs, you know. And and they're, they're just playing on all of the all of the, the the kind of the wrongs of what the situation already is. And and people, probably myself included, a few years ago would have thought, oh, I'm definitely one of those people because I struggle to lose weight by dieting. So I must be one of those bodies that can't respond. So I must go and get that go and get that medication and injection. So it's, you know, I, and the, the, the projections of where these drugs can, can go and the benefits that are going to provide financially for big pharma are the, some of the scariest things I've read recently, um, much bigger than any, most other drugs that are out there. So it's, it's really heading in a really bad direction. And I really hope that people can start to hear these messages before they resort to any of that. Bill, we haven't talked about something like this what's it what is it ozempic olymp i can't remember the mm -hmm. name of the drug yeah we haven't, we haven't talked about that but olivia uh kind of tossed a hand grenade there would you address that yeah you know what what's kind of surprising to me is uh i guess the short memory of so many of my colleagues around you know weight loss drugs and you know the the numerous uh, not only, you know, ineffective uh, medications in the past, but the ones that turned out to have very concerning, very dangerous side effects um, that were only discovered after they were on the market. And, you know, I just kind of look at this and say, here we are again, going down this pathway. Um, uh, and uh, I, I, I do worry about where it's going to lead us. And, you know, there are so many issues around these medications uh, that are already concerning to me, uh, looking at the data around them, uh, that uh, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that it's not going to end well. And, you know, it's just so unfortunate, you know, like I said, that I see so many of my colleagues physicians, nutritionists, like you talked about, dietitians uh, that are, you know, convinced that this is the one, this is the answer to, uh, you know, our obesity problem. Uh, and, you know, and I just, at this point, just say, you know, we have the answer, you know, um, we had the answer and we have the answer, but we forgot the answer uh, because, you know, we just need to go back to how we used to eat essentially. And uh, the obesity problem, you know, will largely go away. Uh, so um, it is, it is pretty scary stuff. Uh, and I, I, for one, am not uh, a fan of, you know, the medications I haven't been advocate. I haven't been recommending it for my patients. Um, and, you know, I just, uh, I'm quite concerned about we're being led down another pathway that looks very familiar to me uh, now in medicine. We've, we've been there before. Yeah. Um, and the, one of the other things I was just going to add to that is that, you know, this, the trials are showing that, that people lose lean mass when they're on these drugs, Yeah, which is very hard to recover. So as you're getting older, so they're losing lean mass. And then um, they're also, um, they're also multiplying their fat cells as hyperplasia of their fat cells that's going on, even though they're losing weight. Um, and so when they come off the drug, which at some point they hopefully have to, or they, they will try to, 
um, especially because it's, you know, has all these side effects, they will then end up having more weight that's fat and their body composition will be higher on fat and lower on, on muscle. So you're just putting them into a much worse position in, in terms of their health by just having this period on of, of supposed weight loss. So there's just so many, so many aspects that are wrong and and very dangerous about it. And I, I think there's a way we have to just start just dialing up those messages and getting people to know that it's not it's not a free ticket to weight loss. I this whole conversation, I I've because you're you're the first person we've talked to who's in this position, in this role, an organization that that's reason for existing is to change the public thinking about how to eat, about about how to be healthy. Um, and Phil and I have been hammering away at this to get a couple of years, and there's a lot of folks who've been doing it a lot longer than than we have. And I, the reason I stopped you at the very beginning when you said you're seeing sense that that is starting to make a difference is because sometimes it feels overwhelming. Sometimes it feels like the job is too big. There are too many people who believe too many stupid things and have believed it for too long for us to make any difference. And so to hear these kinds of, of, Hey, we, we are seeing a difference hear Those stories gives me encouragement. And that reminds me of something that, uh, I'm going to pull in an American basketball coach here. Uh, Greg Popovich is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, and he's had this quote on the uh, wall of their locker room for as long as he's been there. This is a quote from the uh, the poet Jacob Reese. He says, when nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stonecutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet, at the 101st blow, it will split in two. And I know it was not that blow that did it, but all that had gone before. So I see the work we're doing here, the work that the guests that we've had on, the work that folks like you and the Public Health Collaboration, we're all just swinging a hammer against a stone. And uh, if we keep swinging, that stone's going to split. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> I think you're right. And that's very, very poignant um, way to put it. And I totally agree. And I think that's what we were talking about with the grassroots movement. At some point, there will be a tipping point and it will crack wide open. Um, we just need to keep keep building in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. Um, well, Olivia, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you and the uh, Public Health Collaboration? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter mainly, um, Olivia Quadra on both of those. Um, and I'm sure you probably put a link down the spelling. And yeah. um, my son actually has a Real Food Kids instagram page as well so he's trying to spread the message to other kids about how to cook and what recipes to make that um that are, are real food uh so he's uh yeah real food kids on instagram and then public health collaboration is phcuk.org on instagram and um on twitter and on public health collaboration on facebook and our website actually in fact our youtube channel is fantastic if you 
um, subscribe to that. That would be great. We have all our conference talks up there for free from the last lots of many years and some great talks up there um, from, you know, the likes of uh, Robert Lustig and Jason Fung and others that have come to our conference. So uh, that's a good channel to subscribe to because we're going to be releasing all of our talks from the conference that we just had in May that I talked about um, in the coming weeks and and yeah you'll get to see those first so there'll be some including the plants and meat debate so uh yeah follow us on youtube as well i've got everything except your sons that's real food kids on instagram uh -huh. yeah real food kids okay i'll make sure that one shows up in the show notes as well all right folks well this has been olivia quadja with the <clears throat> excuse me <laughs> public health collaboration out of the UK. It's been a delight to have you. Thank um, you. And uh, I guess we're done. Well, thank you very Go much for having me. I enjoyed that. All right. Thank you, Olivia. We'll talk to you all next time. Hey, guys. See you. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.